Well, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here again. I know that we just, it's funny, we just read John 17 in the reading, and that's the chapter I went over last week, so if you missed that, you'll have to listen to that online. So kind of Bob just kind of read everything that scripture I was going over last week. And uh, I, it's funny, I, Ron had said something um, during the worship about uh, how the Lord will return and everything, and we look forward to that day. And so uh, let me go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time and this uh, opportunity to be here today. We don't take for granted, God, that we have the ability to be here. We have a facility. We have people that step up and serve. We thank you for those that, you know, step up when people are gone. We thank you for Julie and Jeff and, uh, you know, the worship team and such a good job they do. Thank you for Ron and and, uh, Cliff and everybody and Lord, we just uh, desire today that uh, that you would, of course, only speak through your word, and we desire, God, that people hear from you. That's all we really want today. We pray also for healing and peace in Germany. It seems like every week we have to you know, pray about some sort of tragedy, and we pray for that uh, situation there, God, that you would uh, just provide what they need, especially that your word would go out and that the good news would go out in that environment. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, when I was a new believer about 1994, or actually on the verge of becoming a believer and after I became a believer, um, you know, one of the things that got me interested in even thinking about Yeshua and this whole thing about the good news or anything was an issue of uh, the end times. You know, I I thought about it during my teen years because I wasn't really a believer then. I was kind of like a nominal believer. And... I just had thought about this a lot, you know, what if, you know, Yeshua, or what about this return of Yeshua to the to the world? It kind of got my attention and kind of scared me a little bit. I wasn't sure if I was really going to be ready for that. So, in a way, you know, God kind of used that to draw me to him. It's something that, you know, he used to get my attention. Um, now, back in 1994 uh, was the year I came to faith, and uh, I didn't come to faith through hearing, you know, a series of messages about the end times or like Yeshua's return. Howard actually was just preaching on Matthew, and I heard the good news about, uh, you know, the Messiah, and I was convicted of my sin, and I came to faith. But it was funny. Howard will tell you this story. I met with him. I think it was about two or three weeks after I came to faith. I had lunch with him in Gehanna, and I, I know he'll never forget this because he always tells the story. But I sat down with him and. I was just thinking, I just began to learn a little bit about what I believe and starting to read the Bible and, of course, very naive. And, and he looked at me and I looked at him and I said, can I ask you a question? Do you think that Yeshua is coming back? And I looked at him and said that to him. Of course, I said Jesus at the time. I wasn't still saying Yeshua much. And he said, yes, I do, uh, but I don't know when. So it was kind of funny, but he knew that was kind of my focus then because I've been going to the bookstores. At that, that time, it was Christian Armory. Does anyone remember the Christian Armory? Oh, yeah, Christian Armory. That's about the only place they had back then, and I even ran to Howard there a few times. Anyway, so I was picking up books on the end times and eschatology and all this stuff and reading them, and I remember one book was called The Sign. I was just reading them right and left. And so, uh, you know, as time went on, I kind of evolved out of that. I I realized there's other things to the spiritual life besides studying the end times, and of course, at that time, there was another book that came out. At that period of history, it was right when there was an assassination in Israel by one of their key leaders. Was it Rabin? What was his name? About 1993 or 4? What, what is it? Yeah, he, he was assassinated, 
And so then the books start flooding the market. You know, this is the beginning of the end and all these things. So I was like, oh, you know, maybe this is the beginning of the end. But as time went on, I eventually realized, you know, I had to focus on other areas of my spiritual life. So then as the years go by, of course, as we all know, uh, you know, in 1994, I was like, oh, this is the most important thing. But then I realized, wow, there's been people been believers way before me that have kind of been focused on the same thing. And they thought this was the end and back in the 70s and the 60s and other parts of history. So anyway, as I moved on, uh, you know, it was a nice thing to kind of branch out into other areas. Um, never have read the Left Behind series, by the way, to this day. But so I just want to uh, mention a couple things. Let's turn to uh, Matthew 23. You know, with the state of our world today, as I go about in the culture, I run into a lot of believers and a lot of people who say, you know, it's not looking good. And maybe this is the end. Maybe we're close to the end. You know, I, I must hear it once a week or I hear it on the news or I hear it on the talk of my fellow believers. But, you know, there's a couple texts here that we need to realize that really speak to this issue. And I think they're very relevant. We want to keep this in mind. And I, I, I'm so glad that, you know, we have these texts to help us with this issue. And we're not going to spend this entire message talking about the end. Don't worry. But uh, not that it's irrelevant. But we uh, want to look at Matthew 23 here. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but, you know, this is that chapter where Yeshua is really rebuking uh, the Pharisees here. Remember that he was hard on them because they were the leaders and they had they were closest to the truth. And actually, Yeshua had more in common with the Pharisees than any other Jewish sect at that time. So we want to keep that in mind that Yeshua actually had a lot in common with the Pharisees. So Pharisees weren't all bad. Uh, you know, sometimes they're made out that way in Christian theology, but uh, we need to really have a good understanding of the Pharisees before we pass judgment on them. But when we come to, oh, let's go to verse uh, 25. I'm just going to start there because I, I, we don't need to read the whole chapter and we don't have time, but I wanted to uh, read starting in verse 25 here. It says here, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, and inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so the outside of it may become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like the whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and every impurity. In the same way on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we have lived in the days of the fathers, oops, we, would, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. You therefore testify against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Snakes, brood of vipers, brood of vipers, how can... You escape being condemned to hell. This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of the righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between his sanctuary and the altar. I assure you all things will come upon this generation. Then he goes on to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and the stones... 
Those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you shall never see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that in this chapter, Yeshua, of course, is saying that a judgment's coming. Of course, he talks about how the temple will be destroyed, and that did happen, and there is a judgment, really. I mean, he's definitely speaking about a judgment's coming. But what's interesting, at the very end of the chapter, he says here in the last verse, he says, you will never see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's interesting. I've, it's so often we read that, and we skip over that word, that article, until. You notice Yeshua says there, I will not return until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It sounds to me like Yeshua is saying, my return is contingent upon you receiving me and welcoming me. So there's a dynamic relationship between Yeshua coming and Israel's repentance. Now, keeping that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 3. We're going to stay with this and go to Acts 3. You'll see a similar theme here. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Can you say it one more time? Acts chapter 3. I heard you, Eric. Okay, you said it. Acts 3. I know you like to repeat things because you think we're not listening, but I heard you. Acts 3. Now, in this chapter, uh, the context, of course, is Peter and John are going to the temple. They see the man there needs to be healed. He's healed. And then we go... On to verse 17. Of course, this is after Peter gives the glory about Yeshua is the one who healed the man. And then we go to verse 17 here. And then Peter is going to preach here. He says here in verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Yeshua, who has been appointed for you as a Messiah. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his prophets from the beginning. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. You must listen to him in everything he will say to you. And everyone he will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Okay, we we can stop there. But if you look at verse 17 on here, specifically 17 through about 21 here, where Yeshua talks about, or Peter talks about the restoration of all things. You know, what's interesting, this is written after Yeshua has ascended, right? He's already ascended to the Father. And now Peter is preaching to the Jewish audience He tells him in verse 19 to repent, to turn back to God. And then he says, repent, because if you repent, the Messiah will be sent to you and the restoration of all things will take place. There'll be that refreshing. So it's interesting. After the Messiah's left, Peter says to the Jewish people right there, his audience, if you repent, the Messiah will come. And then in verse 21, heaven must welcome him until the restoration of all things. So that and, this, and the, also the seasons of refreshing may come. Very interesting that uh, Peter is telling his audience that there's an aspect of your repentance 
God will send the Messiah if you repent. Very dynamic, interesting relationship between Israel's repentance and the return of the Lord. Now, I'm sure perhaps all, how many people have read Romans 11 all the way through? We don't have time to go verse by verse. But it's interesting at the end of that chapter, Paul talks about how all Israel will be saved. Now, some scholars, or some, you know, depends on your interpreters, think it's this and that and this interpretation, that interpretation. But what I believe, and most people, many people believe, that Paul is speaking there of a future time, of course, when God will have a large group of Jewish people coming to faith. It's not necessarily about every Jewish person that's lived on the face of the earth throughout history. It's a future time. So let me uh, kind of tie this in. Well, we have Yeshua saying that he will not come until they say, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. You have Peter saying that if Israel repents, God will send the Messiah. You have Paul talking about one day how Israel will be saved. The question becomes, what position will Israel need to be in so that they will repent and receive their Messiah? Well, I'm going to let you study this on your own because we, we're going to move on through something else. But if you read the end of Zechariah, specifically chapters 12 to 14, you will see one day Israel will be in a corner and one, they will be in a position one day where they will call out and say, we recognize the one whom he, we have pierced and they will be in a position to receive their Messiah. So what's my point? Well, my point is that in these days, when we are going around saying this must be close to the end, and this must be the end, looking at our country, by the way, that's generally when people say that, looking at the state of the country, the world maybe too, but mostly our country, the only thing we should be looking at really, it's going to have to do with Israel. I'm sorry, but Israel's repentance and the Messiah's return go hand in hand, okay? You, don't, you can't divorce them. God started with Israel. The message went to the nations. He will finish with Israel, right? So we need to keep that in mind as we keep looking around our world and country and just saying it's all doom and gloom. But as we were in Acts 3, turn back to Acts chapter 1 because look what uh, Yeshua had to deal with here. Now, we just talked about in Acts 3 where Peter talked about how Israel's repentance or Israel's repentance, the term of the Lord, he talked about the restoration of all things, that God will restore everything. Now, in Acts chapter 1, we read here in verse 4 to uh, 7 here. Let's read verses 4 to 7. So, verse 4, it says, While he was together with them, when Yeshua was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit, the Ruach, not many days from now. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? See, they want that restoration that Peter talked about in Acts 3, that restoration, right? And he said to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or periods the Father is set by his own authority, but you receive power when the Ruach has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, Interesting enough, after Yeshua's resurrection, after everything he'd done, he died and rose from the dead, they still say in verse 6, they ask him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, the restoration of Israel is about the uh, prominence of Israel in world history, where 
the nations flock to Israel, where they're respected by the nations, where they have a prominent place in, in the rest of the world, and they have their Davidic king on the throne, which is Yeshua, of course, and everything's in order, everything's restored, right? Not like we see today. So they still were asking him, are you going to do this now? I mean, you rose from the dead. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And what's Yeshua say here? Instead, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the periods uh, for you to know, but for now, you need to be my witnesses to Judea and the ends of the earth. So perhaps what we need to realize is that uh, something that's very important here, as we think about the all doom and gloom, the return of the Lord and all those issues, is that you know the main purpose of a local congregation is one of the main purposes of a local congregation is to equip us as believers, encourage us, strengthen us, edify us, teach us, so that, uh, that we're equipped to go out in the culture. So when we try to reach out to people in this world today, one model is, of course, is what we call the come and see model. That means that we invite people to the congregation and we want them to come and see what we're doing here. We want them to come and experience the worship. So it's called come and be. But actually, the purpose of the local congregation is to equip you to go and be. Go and be so you can set people free, okay? So what Yeshua says here, as for now, he wants his disciples to go and be, right? Go and be my witnesses. And you know why we need to go and be so strongly? You know why we really need to focus on going and being? Because we have an idol factory in our culture. It's an idol factory. It's everywhere. And we may say to ourselves, well, you know, uh, I'm kind of guilty of some idolatry myself. We all are. We all have those problems as well. But, you know, I looked up, I've been researching this idolatry topic quite a bit, and I looked up some uh, definitions. I looked up some things. We all probably know that Israel had a major problem with idolatry. It's why God judged them in so many times, so many places. Uh, it was always a problem in their history. But, uh, you know, we have the message to set people free from the idol factory in our culture. Tim Keller defines idolatry as the following. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life will hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. Another author, Richard Keyes, defines idolatry. He says, an idol need not to be a full-size replacement for God, for nothing can be. We can become increasingly attached to it until it becomes between us and God, making God remote and his commandments irrelevant or unrealistically prohibitive. In this society, our idols tend to be clusters. They are inflationary, have short, self -lot, short, short shelf lives, and change, adapt, and multiply quickly as it multiply quickly like cell division. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. And then finally, David Pollison says about idolatry, 
Has something or someone besides the Lord taken title in your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? To whom or what do you look for self-sustaining, stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would you really like to make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions are similar ones that tease out whether we serve God or our idols, whether we look for salvation from Messiah or a false savior. You know, the Lord. everyone probably saw The Lord of the Rings, and we know that uh, that whole movie was about getting rid of that ring, and that ring would just destroy that person because whoever was consumed by the ring, they had to have that power, right? And that ring would destroy the individual. That was kind of a very more recent case we can learn about idolatry. But, you know, when it comes to idolatry today, uh, you know, the reason we need to be going and being and sharing the Messiah and being witnesses is because we have the message, as I said, to set people free, okay? And we are definitely living in a culture of fear. I think you probably know that. We are very fearful these days. So I want to mention some of these modern-day idols. Now, I know that scripturally we think idolatry in Israel's history is bowing down to an image because idolatry has to do with images where you pick something else making an image of God, you bow down to it and you worship it, right? Some cases uh, in Scripture, like Ezekiel, there's a passage in Ezekiel where God talks about, uh, he says here, these men have set up idols in our hearts. That's in uh, Ezekiel 14.3. So all idolatry starts really inwardly in the heart, okay? It flows out of your heart and may become external, but it definitely starts inwardly. So what are some of these idols today that we can go and set people free from? We have the message of the good news. We have the answer to this idolatry problem. Well, first and foremost, I think we do know that uh, in this stage of the game, the top of the list is political idolatry. No, not, not at all, right? We have a major, major problem with political idolatry in our culture. And see... What happens is, with idols, is you become so dependent on that thing, and if that thing doesn't happen, or if it goes away, or you don't get it, you're devastated, right? And so what we see here is with political idolatry is that if we have people that are consumed by the politics of our country to fix the problems of our world, and that is the only hope we have, then that is definitely a real problem. So as Keller says here, he says, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened anyway, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end, there is no hope. This may be the reason why so many people now respond to political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that was once reserved for God in the work of the good news. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power and everything, so that in a way really hits the nail on the head of what we deal but you deal with with political idolatry. We even have believers 
today that don't get along because they have different political views. I have a friend that he tells me, well, you know, uh, I had these friends who are believers and I have a different political view of the current state of our country and now they won't, they won't hang out with me anymore. They won't fellowship with me. That is idolatry to the core. Idolatry to the core. We have to be able to tell people you can be set free from this idol in your life. The answer to the country's problems aren't wrapped up in the politics of their day. They're wrapped up in the good news of the Messiah. The Messiah can set you free from that, okay? So that is one idol that's certainly floating around, no doubt about it, and it's getting worse every week. Uh, Another idol, of course, is the issue of um, some basic other idols in our culture today is the idol of success. This is where our core identity is wrapped up in our accomplishments, okay, Uh, with an accomplishment that gives us security, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with, of course, being successful, working hard for God. I'm not talking about that. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes, you know, we get wrapped up in complete success as our identity. And, you know, we tell ourselves, I only have worth if I have success. I'm only uh, really amount to anything. I'm somebody if I have success. And so that is another idol that goes on in our culture. And, of course, we have the idol of relationships today. Uh, We look to people to complete us. We look to people to fulfill us. We look to people to, uh, you know, meet all our needs. And we have a problem with uh, looking to people in the wrong way in that area. That is certainly an idol in our culture today. So that obviously is a common one. We also have the idol of the approval idol. Uh, You know, I'm only a somebody if someone approves of me, right? If this person accepts me and tells me that I matter, then I am a somebody. Uh, That is not really the healthy way to view reality at all, because many people may not approve of you, but God approves of you no matter what, right? Because you're identified in him. And then, of course, we have the idol of um, the issue of uh, one more I had here. Let's see. We have one, uh, the, another big one, of course, is the issue of nationalism. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, nationalism. Uh, that, uh, you know, our core identity is uh, really wrapped up in a specific nation or country. So that's a problem as well, because our core identity is in the Messiah. So what is the message, though, that we need to give people here? Well, Yeshua says to go and be, so we can set people free. But look at Romans uh, chapter 1 for a minute here. I want to show you something that we really need to be remembering. Now, let me say this about idolatry. I just want to make clear that as we talk about an idol factory in our culture, I I know that all of us struggle with idolatry as well. I do. We all do. I'm not making it out to be like it's just the unbeliever out there because we all have to struggle with idolatry, and we'll be working on that till the day the Lord comes back. Many of us can be consumed by things that aren't other other than the Lord for sure. But you know the message we need to be telling people is this message about when we go and be and we try to set people free. It's right here in Romans 1. I call it the Jewish gospel, uh, not the de-Judaized gospel like we present to people today. The de-Judaized gospel is you just need to believe in shoe to go to heaven or hell. That's the de-Judaized gospel, okay? This is the Jewish gospel in chapter 1 here, verse 1. Paul says here, Paul, a slave of Messiah Yeshua, called as an apostle, singled out for God's good news, 
which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, who is a descendant of David according to the flesh, who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. We have received grace upon apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith to the nations on behalf of his name, including yourselves who also belong to Yeshua Messiah. So Paul says here that the gospel, the good news, is about the Son, Messiah, who is the Davidic king, because the Son of God is the Davidic king. He says the gospel was already announced beforehand in the Jewish scriptures. It's not something brand new. It's in the Jewish scriptures. And he says here the resurrection has guaranteed that there's a Davidic king on the throne forever, right? The resurrection guarantees Yeshua is the Son of God, the Davidic king. So that is the message you see that we can set people free from, that there is one king who rules, and he is Yeshua, the Messiah, okay? That is what people need to know, that he is the answer. That is what sets people free. Now, if you go on through Romans 1 here, if you look at uh, Romans 1, we see that Paul addresses this issue of idolatry. Now, in this chapter, of course, if you read through the whole thing in context, it had to do with uh, sexual issues. It had to do with um, you know, homosexuality and things. I don't have time to go into that deeper. But look what happens here with the case of idolatry. Look at uh, verse, uh, start with uh, verse 18. It says here, in verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over and the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who's praised forever. So you notice there it's interesting that God basically... In the end, when they exchange something for God, that exchange takes place. That always happens with idolatry. Exchange something for God. God basically lets them have it, right? He turns it over. He turns them over to it. And that is very scary because, you see, whatever idol consumes somebody and they have to have that thing, eventually God may just say, okay, you can have it. If you want that idol... If you want a different king in your life, you can have that, okay? And I'll let you have it, and we'll see what happens. So that's why it is so scary about to deal with idolatry. So that is why we need to be telling people they can be set free from that through the good news of the Messiah. Now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 for a minute, and I want to talk about something that's very important. Ephesians 5. I usually stay in one text, but today I like flipping around a lot. I usually have one text through the whole message, but today we're flipping around a little bit. Now, if Yeshua tells us to go and be until he comes back, as I've talked about, that's what he basically says to do. We are to go and be because, you know, most of our time during the week is not at Beth Messiah, right? 
we only have about a two-hour gap on a Saturday we're here, and most of our time is in our job and our family and our community and our neighborhoods. That is where we're going and being, right? We go out and be witnesses all around wherever we are. Then we have to be cognizant of our time. And it's interesting, when you come to verse uh, 15 here of chapter 5 of Ephesians, that Paul talks about this. I don't know about you, but... uh, you know, towards the end of life, I know many of us may think about this, and maybe earlier in life, uh, you begin to think about how you're using your time as time, you know, you begin to think about your time a lot. I'm more cognizant of my time than I used to be, because it seems like time's going so fast. But he says here in verse 15, he says here, pay careful attention then how you are to walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless afflictions, but be filled by the Spirit. Then speaking rather in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making music from your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, submitting to him in the fear of Messiah. Now Paul says here in verse 15, he says, pay careful attention. That means to examine, examine how you're walking not as unwise people, that is wise. He's saying walk as one in wisdom, walk in God's wisdom, not as a fool, but as in God's wisdom, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Now, we know in Paul's time there was evil as well, okay? It wasn't like it was great then, it's bad now. There's all kinds of evil in that time. But you know when he says the word making the most of the time, when he says time, it's not like clock time, like how many minutes, how many hours, He's talking about a season of time, a season of time that God gives you in your life, okay? It's a season, all right? And that is something we need to remember that we all only have one season in our life that God gives us to make a difference in this world. He's saying make the most of it because the days are evil, right? So for me personally, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, someday when I'm gone, You know, I'm sure some of us have been to funerals and, uh, you know, we may think about this, maybe not, maybe it's depressing, but do you ever think about, you know, sometimes what what are people going to say about me or what difference have I made in this world? But you know what I've realized? That's the wrong question. Wrong question. The real bottom line issue is what's God going to say about me? Because he's the one I'm going to stand before and he's going to evaluate me. You know that? I won't be able to sit there and hang out with people after I'm gone and they're going to talk about me. I'm going to be able to go back and, oh, really? That's so kind of you said that about me. I won't be able to do it. It'll all be done. And so in the end, at the end of our lives, really all that matters is how God evaluates us. And that's why we need to remember that is uh, how we use our time and how much we're investing into going and being. Going and being, being witnesses of Yeshua wherever we are. Because in the end, uh, you know, we, that's one of the main reasons we'll be evaluated, okay? Now, uh, I wrote down here, you know how it says here in verse 17, he says here, do not get foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. I went through the scriptures and I wrote down some of these things about the will of the Lord. Many, many books have been written about God's will. We know there's probably like maybe 680 out there, maybe 690, thousands of books written on finding God's will. But, you know, many scriptures already speak to what the Lord's will is, and he's given us many things to do in this life now, and I wrote some of these down. 
kind of interesting is how many things he's already told us to do. Um, you don't need to pray about it. He's already told us in his word. Okay, so let's see. Number one, uh, Yeshua commands us, of course, to make disciples of the nations, Matthew 28, 19. It's definitely God's will for us to share our faith and make disciples, make Talmudim. That's definitely God's will for us, no doubt. Number two, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 7, Paul says abstain from sexual immorality. He says it's God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray continually, giving thanks in all circumstances, something we're supposed to do. Romans 12, 1 to 2, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's another thing that's God's will. Ephesians 6, 18, we're supposed to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Uh, John 17, 20 to 23, I talked about this last week. Yeshua says we're called to promote unity among our brothers and sisters because I said last week that the triune nature of God is how we represent ourselves to others, and people don't know what that is because they don't know the Lord. They can't re reflect God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 13, love unconditionally. He talks about the ways we love people, so I put love radically, love unconditionally. John 17, 3, Yeshua says, It is eternal life to know God and know his son Yeshua, Messiah, so that you may know eternal life. So basically, as I said last week, eternal life is a quality of life. It's about knowing God and his son Yeshua, the Messiah. That's God's will for you. Galatians 5, 19 to 25, avoid the deeds of the flesh and experience the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, where it says, sanctify the Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. So I say, know what you believe and why you believe and be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Colossians 3, 23, it's God's will that you work heartily for him, not for men. So whatever we do, we do it heartily unto the Lord. So, you know, right there, that's a lot to uh, remember about doing God's will. There's plenty to uh, work on until the Lord takes us home. So let me say a few things as we kind of wrap up here. You know, as we look at the state of the world and the country, and we want Messiah to return. Messiah's return is related to Israel's repentance, okay? We have scriptural basis for that, and it's all through the uh, Jewish writings as well. We could talk about that as well. But as for now, Yeshua tells us to go and be so we can set people free, whether it be from a certain idol in their life, whatever it is, because everybody's an idolater in some capacity. So we can go and set people free. And then thirdly, we need to remember how we use our time. We only have a season of time in this life to go and be. That's why we need to make sure we take advantage of every opportunity we have to go and be. So as you go out from here today, you can invite people to come and see but most likely, you're going to need to go and be. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you. We pray, Lord God, we thank you so much for the opportunity, God, to go and be in this culture. We pray, Lord God, Alvinu, just as Messiah Yeshua prayed, he told his disciples, as for now, there to be witnesses in the world. I pray, Lord God, as we go and be, that we'd set people free with the good news of Messiah. And we pray, Lord God, that no matter what happens in this country and what happens in the world, that we keep our eyes focused on you and we remember there's only one king and his name is Messiah Yeshua. We pray, Lord God, our eyes would be focused on him. Help us, Lord God, to not be consumed by anything other than you. May we not live in fear, okay? And I pray, God, that we would remember that you are working no matter what. You are working in this situation. 
I pray, Lord God, you would set us free from fear and panic. And I pray, Lord God, that we would trust in you, not in idols. We pray this all in Yeshua's name. Amen.